Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about books, research, and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to have on the program today the writer Lori Lyle. Lori is going to be talking about the second of two of her classic artist's biographies. The title is Louise Nevelson, A Passionate Life, released by Summit Books in 1990 and then reissued recently in a new edition, including a Kindle edition, in 2016 by Open Road Distributors. Hello, Lori. Hi. It's great to have you on the show. So this is your second biography of a major female artist, the first being your portrait of an artist, a biography of George O'Keefe. And I hope you can come back and talk about the O'Keefe book soon, maybe for our first interview in the fall. So my first question is, what inspired you to decide to become a writer and a biographer of women and women artists in particular? Well, as a child, I was a reader, and what I loved to read were children's biographies of famous women uh-huh. when they were little girls. Oh, yeah. We have a famous Vassar grad. She was famous anyway. Not many people know her anymore. Her name is Helen Josephine Ferris, who did a whole bucket of these biographies back in the first 20, 30 years of the 20th century. She was a, a grad of 1912, and she had books called, well, one, Juliet Lowe and the Girl Scouts, I know, and yeah. then books like Challenge, Stories of Courage and Love for Girls, The Time of Starting Out, Stories of Girls on the First Jobs, that kind of thing. She had just dozens of these things. I got interested, actually, because when I was a child, when I started reading one of my favorite books, was one of her books. It was called Favorite Poems Old and New. It was a big children's anthology of poetry, mostly with nonsense verse in it, you know. But but anyway, I always wondered about it. And I finally found the thing. And then I realized we had all her books in the library. And we had her books because she was a Vassar grad and she gave them to us. So Oh, but, nice. Yeah, well, you know, these books made a big impression on me as a little girl. And I kept wondering why they became famous and all that. And then when I got older, I read the adult biographies of them. I mean, these are Louisa May Alcott, Jane uh, Addams, uh, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And so it was just very natural for me to become a biographer, particularly of artists. And I think that was really just a deep-seated interest that uh, went way back. So you started out doing the O'Keefe biography, I know, and then you became interested in Louise Nevelson's. How did you get interested in those particular artists, I guess is the question. Well, O'Keefe, I had seen her 19... I guess it was in 1970, big retrospective at the Uh, Whitney Museum. And it was like nothing I had ever seen before. Yeah, Yeah, she became very famous almost overnight. You know, again, he's famous for a second Well, in the 70s, a lot of young women were looking for... They were looking for the great women artists, the great women writers. Who are these women in history? They were trying to refine women's history. Yeah, to some extent, and, thanks to Linda Nochlin here, who you know wrote a famous essay, Why There Are No Great Women Artists. So we were looking for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found O'Keefe. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So in those years, I remember I got the big folio that came out of her flower paintings. I remember. Oh, yes. You know, they were all over. So, uh. And then and what then about Nevelson then? Um, well... I was living in New York on West 69th Street, and I worked at Newsweek magazine in Midtown, Uh across the park, and I used to walk to work across Central Park and down towards 57th Street, and right in the corner of of 57th and 5th Avenue was this enormous Nevelson steel sculpture, Uh Uh, this black, 
very, very powerful, yeah. Night Presence 4. And it fascinated me because it, it seemed to refute everything that people assumed about women artists, uh-huh. that, that their work would be too inwardly focused, uh, it would be too oversensitive, too small and delicate. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was seeing images of Nelson in newspapers and uh-huh. magazines, and he was this flamboyant yeah. creature, <laughs> dressed to the nines with yeah. feathers and furs and jewelry and false eyelashes. And I just was quite fascinated, this very ultra-feminine person making uh-huh. these incredibly uh-huh. yeah. strong, assertive sculptures. Yeah, I, I know that piece. It reminds you of Picasso a lot, David Smith. It's very mm-hmm. powerful. So then... When you decided to do the biography, how did you go about doing your research? Because our show is, to some extent, about the research process, and people do research differently. Some people spend a lot of time in archives, some conduct interviews. Uh, so, Well, you go where the material is. Uh-huh. And fortunately, I was able to interview Nevelson uh-huh. uh, at length, uh-huh. and her son, which was quite wonderful, and some of her granddaughters. Uh-huh. She has some archives at a museum in Maine and at the Archives of American Art in Washington. Yeah. And I went through them. But there was a problem. Uh, Nevelson didn't write very much. No. She didn't write letters. Uh-huh. She was a telephoner. Uh-huh. I mean, it's sort of the problem uh, well, of, of modern biographers. <laughs> yeah. um, email, and, yeah. Yeah. I really had to look sideways. I had to look at her uh, self-portraits. Yeah. She had done a number of self-portraits in oil paint, and then she had done some abstract wooden sculptures that she called self-portraits. Uh-huh. So I had quite an interesting time figuring all this out. Yeah. <laughs> and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is the first biography, though, isn't it? Because you don't yes. have anything to base this on. You don't have another biography right. to read and then work out from. So uh, No, and it's, it's actually quite a bit of fun to write a first biography uh, yeah. because there's no story. I mean, you're <laughs> creating the story. So what you had to say about the difficulty of doing this reminded me of an interview I just did with a friend who worked in the art department here, Nick Adams, who just retired, and he just finished a biography that he's been working on sometime of the um, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill architect Gordon Bunshaft. And when Nick talked about doing the biography, he said it was a difficult job. And when he started to talk about it, he said that he had a friend who consoled him with the phrase that people are puzzling, which Nick said he came to realize after he thought about it was a profound statement. And that partly in his case had to do with the fact that Bunshaft, A, he was a very complex person and also very reticent. You know, he didn't say much about himself. He didn't say much about his work, actually. There, there wasn't much of a record except for the work itself. So he had to work through the buildings. And, you know, what you just had to say about Nevelson reminds me of that. You have her art, which is a self-portrait in a way, if, if all works of art are portraits of her artists, but not much else to go on. And, well, the phrase, people are puzzling, brings to my mind Collingwood, the historiographer, talking about history being like uh, working in a detective story, basically, where you're looking for yeah. clues all the time. So I wondered, yes, I mean, I've got a two-part question. One, about your methodology of, of uncovering this person, Louise Nevelson. And two, is she as puzzling as she seems? Because she does seem enigmatic. Uh, Very complex. Uh-huh. Very complex. And, of course, no biographer can capture in a normal-sized book 
uh-huh. all the aspects of a personality. Uh-huh. And I mean, this is where the biographer really comes in. I mean, you have to sift and and make decisions all the time about yeah. what's most important. And I decided what was most important to me was, you know, what made her create this art. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the personality that made the art. I mean, there were a lot of other aspects to her, but I really wanted to focus on that. Uh-huh. So you you take one part of the puzzle. Uh-huh. Puzzling personality, or the, the, the part you regard as most important or most interesting, uh-huh. and you go with that. Interesting. So it, it did seem, reading it, that I was unraveling a kind of mystery story, and this mystery is the mystery of Louise Nevelson, you know. So anyway, just looking at Nevelson's life, she's sort of quintessential American artist, but she's not born in the United States, is she? Which makes her, in some ways, quintessential American, and that she is an immigrant. She has a fascinating story. I uh-huh. mean, really, she was born in Russia in a little village, a little Jewish shuttle, little, uh-huh. I guess you call it, a little village. And uh, at the age of five, she came to this country with her mother and two siblings. Her father had already settled in Maine, so they also settled in Maine in a small town, uh, Rockland, on uh-huh. the coast, which in 1905 was very, very provincial and homogeneous. And here comes this family that speaks a different language and has a different religion and you can imagine how difficult it was yeah. for her family to get used to this culture. And they never really did. I mean, yeah. her father ended up fairly successful, but her mother was always unhappy. Um, but it had a profound effect on Louise because yeah. I think coming to this country without the language, she had to absorb and understand everything through her eyes. Uh, and I think that really formed her as a young child. Well, she would have um, spoken Yiddish coming over, wouldn't she? That's uh, right. So English that's would right. have been very foreign to her. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So she became a visual person uh-huh. just to survive when she was very, very young. And then she gradually learned the language, of course. And, but then, you know, living in Maine as an outsider was another profound experience for her and not a particularly happy one. Yeah. And it somehow fired her up, though. I mean, uh-huh. it just fired her up to make something of herself. Well, the, it's interesting that there's a parallel there with another person who happens to be a Vassar graduate, Edna St. Vincent Millay, born in Rockland, actually, about seven years earlier, I think, than Nevelson arrived there. And she moved up to Camden, which is, you know, just a couple of miles up the coast, but also found it incredibly provincial as a child growing up. Difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. Her mother raised her, her mother divorced her husband. Very unusual in those years for women Mm -hmm. to strike off on their own like that. And then raised her three daughters on her own. But same thing. I wonder, they didn't spend much time in Rockland before she moved up there. But I wonder if they went to the same schools, knew the same people. Well, I I never came across anything. Um, that linked them together. Well, you do have a mention in the biography that she makes a quip to her son, Mike, that uh, I, I'm going to be as famous as Edna St. Vincent Millay. Well, uh, she'd heard about <laughs> yeah. her. Oh, yeah. Sure, yeah, I guess. I mean, if Nevelson was five, uh-huh. um, Edna St. Vincent Millay would have been like a, a young teenager. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she already already from, writing poetry. Yeah, she was, yeah. Yeah, she started early. So and Actually, she was writing as a child. So Yeah, so... The word probably got around. <laughs> I mean, it's such a small environment. But uh, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that her father, even when they were back in the Ukraine, was involved in some way in the timber business because he could work as a woodcutter. Yes. So she has that influence in a way, that, that notion of wood anyway, that her father... And what was most important was 
in his very first years in Rockland, uh-huh. he was a peddler, uh-huh. a junk collector. Yeah. And so there was a lot of pieces of wood, furniture, this and that around. Yeah. Very humble profession. Yeah. And Nevelson never mentioned it. Her father was always a collector of antiques in her, uh-huh. <laughs> the way she put it. And eventually he did start to buy real estate. Yeah. But I looked at the 1910 census, and there it was. Her father was a peddler, you know, old junk. And I always felt that when she, in the 50s, after she was in New York and found the way she wanted to work, and she collected old junk, pieces of wood from the gutters of New York during the building boom of the post-war period, and made art from it. It was yeah. almost she was doing this for her father's sake uh-huh. to, to uh-huh. sort of redeem his his <laughs> reputation. Yeah. In Interesting. A way. She always had her eye open for junk wherever she was walking through the city. There, didn't she? So thinks she'd haul back yeah. to the studio or find people to lift and haul back to her studio. So then, what about her mother and her relationship with her mother? You know, we have a Louise Bourgeois exhibition up now at the Loeb Center. Another famous American sculptor. The show is necessarily biographical, and the debt that Bourgeois felt she owed her mother figures prominently in it Um, Mm -hmm. you know that's to some extent what the spider is about that image that she uses it's a female image and an image of a powerful woman and I could say the same thing about Malay's fierce attachment and loyalty to her mother so what was the relationship between Louise and her mother like well it was very close Uh it was very loyal her mother was really unhappy in Rockland as I said but Louise felt she was a queen, Uh (laughs) (laughs) that she was queen in the wrong place. Uh And uh, her mother used to somehow dress herself and her daughters very elegantly, and they would parade around. I think the mother wore makeup, which was, of course, nobody else did. But she was not respected, and uh, she was not embraced or uh, really included yeah. in the community because she was different. Uh, and I think uh, Louise was motivated to be the queen that uh, her mother uh, never was, never could be. In the biography, you mentioned she had something of an admirer in the famous Jewish playwright and author Shalom Aleichem, whose sister lived next door to the family, who said something to the effect that she had a face made in heaven. Does that ring a bell? Am I getting it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think also observed that Louise was meant for greatness, (laughs) (laughs) which her mother always quoted uh to her. So uh I think her mother really wanted Louise to be the queen. She Uh couldn't be Uh as well. Uh And she was pushed into an early marriage Uh with a very wealthy New Yorker when she was 20. It was Uh essentially an arranged marriage. Just to get her out of Maine and uh-huh. back to New York, where she felt she should be. And then when Louise wanted to leave her husband and make art, uh-huh. go to Europe, leave her son and go to Europe, study with Hans Hoffman, her mother uh-huh. backed her. I mean, uh-huh. whatever she wanted to do, her mother was there for her. That must have been a difficult decision, and it's good she had some backing because I'm sure there would have been a lot of resistance. She had a child. Oh, my she goodness. was married into a wealthy family, and she wanted to drop everything and go to 1930s Germany, you know, a Jewess, yeah. to study yeah. under this German artist who was teaching modern yeah. arts. So, uh, of course, her husband's family lost most of their money in 1929, so she wasn't yeah. leaving wealth. Yeah. She was just leaving her family, but that was a lot. And I think she was politically unaware, and I think 
the only real indication she had that there was something wrong was that Hans Hoffman was trying to get his American students to help him get to America. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had a studio, didn't he, uh, on the same street that Hitler's house was on, I think. I mean, it was, uh, they were in Munich, she, right? She was, she was very much aware of, of these boys in brown uniforms. Uh-huh. Whatever. But she was never politically interested, even as an adult, and I, I think she just floated through. And I think she was more concerned about her son, yeah. guilt and everything, having left her son, yeah. than what was happening politically. Yeah. So this is a big decision for her, though. In a sense, she's deciding here that she's going to have a different life than most women do have, didn't she, uh, when she decides yes. to become an artist? Yeah. yeah. Well, she was going to be famous. Yeah. And it was art that she chose. Uh-huh. I mean, when she first moved to New York as a young bride, she took singing lessons uh-huh. and acting lessons. And she had taken some early lessons at the Art Students League. They yeah. didn't really fire her up. She didn't get fired up and focused on art until the late 20s uh-huh. and the early 30s. Yeah, yeah another uh, parallel with Malay who's also very interested in acting. Same thing. And then Nevelson then gets interested in dance also, doesn't she? Um, yes, she does. Um, so is Hoffman much of an influence? No, she was very disappointed in that class. Oh, oh was she? She felt that he wasn't interested in her. And I, she sort of drifted off. And I think she took a bit part in a couple of films, uh-huh. European films. Um, and then she went to Paris and looked at the art. It was a very disappointing experience for her as an artist. Uh, so what goes into her education as an artist? I mean, her training as an artist. Well, when she was very young, she was considered the artist at uh-huh. her little uh, school uh-huh. in Rockland. She was praised and won prizes. And then later on, in 1929, I guess it was, she became a full-time student at the Art Students League in uh-huh. New York. And she had some teachers who she liked a lot, mm-hmm. drawing teachers, and they liked her. And, you know, she really blossomed. And she talked about the professors, and one of them was Kenneth Hayes Miller. Uh-huh. He taught the classical techniques of Renaissance painting, uh-huh. but encouraged modern subject matter. Uh-huh. Kind of interesting. You know, the Art Students League is a wonderful atmosphere. They, students are quite free to do their own thing then as well as now, and she didn't really follow Miller's rules, uh-huh. and the paintings that she did there are more like in the style of Gauguin than what he was teaching and most other students were doing. But she became his pet, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, okay. and they uh-huh. became friends, went to museums together. So it was really the Art Students League was where she got her any kind of formal training. I mean, you'd have to call her, if you were going to categorize her as anything, you'd have to call her a cubist. I mean, she's very yeah. facile and sophisticated in the way she draws or conceives of space. She's very indebted to Picasso and Brock and those people, yes. isn't she? Uh, so, oh, uh, yes. Yeah. She said that she identified with cubism at its earliest stages, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and she said she felt grounded by the square. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By cubism. And of course, as you know, she ended up putting her fragments of wood within boxes uh-huh. and everything painted black. Yeah. And then she stacked the boxes to make walls. Uh-huh. And those were her cubes. Yeah. 
her filled cubes. Our, our Molly Nesbitt, who teaches 20th century art here, she weaves a whole class in Art 105 around Picasso's guitar constructions. Her work reminds me a lot of those works. There's something about her whole story here. She seems to have this sort of passionate and almost explosive personality or at least a deep need to do something with her life. I mean, she does feel that she's destined to something. And I wonder, can you talk about a personality, you know, that comes out in those later years in the 70s when she is so flamboyant? Well, again, she was told all through her childhood that she was destined for greatness (laughs) by her mother. And she did have a fire to make something of herself. It's not unusual for something from an immigrant background, somebody talented from an immigrant background, to sort of want to show them. And she wanted to do what her mother and father couldn't do in America. And she was always attracted a lot of attention because she was tall Uh and she was very beautiful. And, you know, as she got older, she really developed this compulsion Uh to express herself through art. And drama, I mean, all the dance lessons and the theatrical lessons, I mean, she, she knew how to enter a room uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. and make everybody stop yeah. and look at her. Yeah, yeah. Once she yeah. does so, become famous, she really applies that beautifully, doesn't she? So uh, Yes. And then she, she was very beautiful, and she had over her lifetime all kinds of interesting admirers and sexual partners. Diego yes. Rivera, for <laughs> one, of course, uh, Frida Kahlo herself, Celine, Kime Gross, and, you, you know, the list goes on and on and on. You can't believe it. You know, it's, it's like Woody and Allen's many, film, you know, after a while. Everybody famous seems to come into her orbit here. And a lot of people who weren't famous. Yeah. And then many uh, Amanusis also, you know, uh, helpers, which a sculpture yes. needs, uh, but lots of helpers all through her life, both women and men, that, yeah. that she collected. It was a power of her personality. Uh-huh. People, certain kinds of people just wanted to be with her uh-huh. and do things for her. They were quite fascinated by her. And that was fine with her because, she, as you said, she needed studio help. She needed people who could carry things yeah. to shows. Yeah. 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 Now, one of her helpers is this, her son, yes, uh, who, yes who, my, who, who she influences to a great extent. He becomes a sculptor himself, doesn't he? So. Yes. Yeah. That's a very complicated and it's a kind of disturbing relationship yeah. in my opinion uh-huh. because she really wasn't a very good mother she didn't really know how to be a mother and uh-huh. wasn't interested and and it wasn't really till mike learned how to get her attention by helping her with her career and when he got older he moved to maine himself and he would scout around and bring her raw materials for her work and he became kind of a partner, uh-huh. in a way. I get the impression from your book, he's almost a sort of saint in the background there. And he's with her in the end, isn't he, when she dies? So, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Well, she, she you know, left him everything. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so I think she felt that, that she should. And he was a sculptor, but of a very different kind than, uh-huh. than she was. Yeah. But I think it was really his way to be close to his mother. It was to work in the same field. and. Uh, well, in the research process, did you interview him as well? As yeah, yes, I did. did. So you must have a, a sense of these relationships that you get from actually sitting with someone that would be hard to get through reading, right? I mean, that's oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 But you don't want to say the wrong thing or say too much, but you must have a in, very interesting insight into the, her whole world. Oh, yes. And, and, and Mike, he told me about his kind of sad childhood with a lot of humor. He just told a lot of funny stories about raiding his uh, piggy bank uh, when his mother brought home 
people to have a party and there uh-huh. was no, no food <laughs> and he'd go out with his nickels and dimes and buy uh, wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really, he treated the whole thing with a lot of humor. Yeah. But I think underneath it had been pretty painful for him. Yeah, well, for both of them, uh, getting through the Great Depression, right? Uh, I know she had WPA work, but... Uh, yes, so, she did. Yeah, so, uh, and she taught a little bit. But people gave her money. I mean, her, her uh, brother, uh-huh. for some, she had an older brother who, for some reason, felt responsible for her mm-hmm. and would send her money. And um, she had boyfriends who gave her money and... She didn't get divorced for a while, yeah. and her husband would give her uh, a little uh, money. Uh-huh. So she was poor, but she managed. And her sisters, I mean, you know, her, her sisters used to take her on trips. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, she, she made people feel she was special uh-huh. and that they should do things for her. Well, she, she turned out special, actually, in, in actuality, didn't she? So in terms Yes, of, she yeah, was special. Yeah, she was. Quite charismatic, yeah. yeah. So apart from the bad economy that she had to manage, she has, has to face discrimination in the art world, doesn't she, as a female artist? And, and I wonder if you well, could yeah. talk about that. Well, in the 1950s, uh, you know, that was when the abstract expressionists with their enormous yeah. canvases reigned. Yeah. And they really didn't want much competition, and they uh, certainly didn't want it from women. <laughs> and the women artists had difficulty you know, getting their work into shows. And, yeah. and I did hear a story about they're having a meeting. They were going to have a meeting uh-huh. to figure out what to do. And they, they did. They met in someone's studio, and Louise was there. And uh, as they were trying to figure out some action to take her, somebody's boyfriend wandered in and heard what they were doing, and he said, Don't do it! Don't do it! And, you know, and, and sort of they, the whole thing fell apart. Oh, no. uh-huh. <laughs> But it was it was very very difficult. But yeah. and so it's kind of interesting to me that since the size of these paintings were were uh-huh. so enormous at at that time uh-huh. that Louise yeah. took a certain pride in putting together her walls. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> her, yeah, yeah. They were just as big as those paintings. Yeah, yeah. She's not in denial good. about the uh, prejudices she's up against, is she? I mean, she. she oh knows, no, she, she was. She was very animal. aware of it. And then she, later, does she become in the seventies a supporter of feminism and women's rights and women, other women artists? So, yeah, I think yeah. she was always sympathetic. So if she's and, apolitical in terms of you know traditional politics. She's not apolitical as a, as a feminist, is she? No, yeah. no. I mean, she was interested in helping younger women artists, uh, but she didn't spend a lot of time at it. Yeah. But her attitude was generous. She spent her time making art, but she understood, you know, what it was like to be left out of things because you were a female artist. So she is motivated, though. I mean, no matter how bad things get, she continues to do art, and she continues to send her stuff out to the galleries and um, try to make herself known, doesn't she? Oh, yes. Yeah, she never stops. And she took a pride at one point in her life in having her work in as many places as she could, uh-huh. and including hair salons, yeah. and, I mean, just just wherever ever it could be seen, she yeah. would put it there. She didn't care where it was. Yeah. I used to have a Chinese it. student that worked for me that once offered the motto, persistence wins, and uh, it's a nice motto, actually, and she was certainly persistent. So did she collect art herself, or did she admire the work of other artists? She did. She, of course, admired Picasso. Uh-huh. She couldn't collect Picasso. Yeah. But, you know, what she really collected more than anything were crafts, like wonderful American Indian baskets uh-huh. and African masks 
and um, artifacts. Uh-huh. And she, she had an enormous collection yeah. of, of things like that, more than paintings and sculptures by other artists. She was very interested in, uh, I mean, she made a trip to see the Mayan ruins. And, oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, they were very uh, inspiring yeah. for her. That was one of her, her many influences. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, there was actually a painter she collected. Alchemius, are you talking about? Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an interest of hers that I have a hard time understanding, because uh, I don't it, think much of his work. <laughs> no, no. And not, nothing like and her work, but she collects them. She collected his work, she promoted it, and she sold it. It was one of her sources of income. I think there was just something primitive about it that yeah. she liked. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Well, he was an oddball. Yeah. Well, I wonder then if we can talk about her sculpture, especially her wooden pieces that made her so successful in the 50s and 60s. Well, the black pieces. Uh-huh. You know, they started out as sort of free form, and then she, as I said, she enclosed them in boxes. And, you know, she did the ultimate box. Uh-huh. <laughs> By the 70s, she decided she was going to make a walk-in box. Uh-huh. And perhaps you've heard of Mrs. N's Palace. Yes, yeah, uh uh-huh. And it's really extraordinary, enormous box. It's a large windowless walk-in box with a black mirrored floor, Uh totally encrusted with her little pieces of um, wood arranged the way she felt they should be. And it's an amazing piece of work. It's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh Once in a while, they exhibit it. And she said about the palace, she said, I feel that the palace is both highly sophisticated and highly primitive, and in the, and the, and the meeting place of genius and insanity. <laughs> I haven't been in it, but I love her work sort of generally. I mean, I really love the way there are pieces that you see in daily life, you know, banister rails, that kind of thing, but they're completely transformed into something other than what they are. They're into pure form almost, in their own form. And they're all allowed to live again in a strange way in this kind of art world that she creates. And her works really are installations. I mean, uh, she almost invents the idea of the art installation, doesn't she? Well, yeah. She has some shows where there was absolutely no light. Yeah. Uh, These dark spaces where you had to sort of find your way from a piece of of uh, work to another piece of work. She wanted it to be sort of an environment, an emotional experience to encounter her work. So, oh yeah, this was a, a big part of, of what she wanted to do. Yeah. She had to have the cooperation of her gallerists for that kind of thing, or be, be recognized by the museums finally, didn't she? So, uh, yeah, well she had a very mixed experience with art dealers, and of course every artist needs an art dealer, and uh-huh. She got lucky in the in the 1940s when Karl Nierendorf showed her work. He was a German emigre during the war, and he'd been quite a important dealer in Europe. And he gave her a show, and I think they also had an affair, uh-huh. I think. Yeah. And she was really hopeful that he would continue to show her work with the great Europeans as he uh-huh. as he was doing. Yeah. After the war ended, he went back to Germany to take care of some business. On his return to New York, he had a sudden heart attack and died. And she was devastated and, uh-huh. and went into a, a tailspin. And then in, in subsequent years, she had a dealer named Martha Jackson, mm-hmm. who she uh-huh. worked with. Uh-huh. And was she the they, Buffalo curator at Albright Knox? I think York. so. Yeah. And 
She had a terrible, disastrous experience with Sidney Janis. Oh, yes. Famous, <laughs> actually. Well, I yeah. should say your book is a nice history of the gallery world and the art world generally of this whole period. The interrelation between the gallerists and the artists, the way uh, artists had to actually live to get along. You know, it's all yeah. here in a nice way. So it's Well, like, Nevelson so... was a very difficult artist to represent because uh-huh. she... Uh-huh. Because any work in her possession, she was always changing it. Yeah. Even if it had been photographed, <laughs> yeah. or even if it was owned by somebody else, if she could get her hands on it, she was always changing and rearranging things. So the dealers had a terrible time with her. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and finally, of course, she was very lucky, yeah. and she got picked up by Arnold Glimpshire at uh-huh. Pace. Yes, he and was he, lucky also, though, to find her. You know, they, they were made for yes. each other in some ways. He was they? very young. Yeah, he was yeah, very he young. Was, yeah. When she agreed to work with him, she yeah. was much more famous and yeah. established with her reputation. Yeah, he was still a be- student, I think, when he started out with her. I mean, at Boston well, U or wherever he was, I think. Uh, yeah, he was a well. He wanted to be a, a painter. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And he realized that wasn't his thing, so he started to become a dealer. But yes, he was very young, but uh-huh. he he knew how to get along with her. Yeah. And one of the reasons was is that his mother. It's very much like her. Oh, okay. Uh, sort of a, 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 she was from Russia, and uh-huh. she was flamboyant, and he just knew how to flatter uh, Louise and uh-huh. and work with her and be patient, and, and it just paid off for both of them. Yeah, there had been artists that she got along with well like that also, like Rothko. Uh, you know, people that she had something in common with. I think. Um, yeah. So Glimpsher then talks her into doing steel pieces, like the steel pieces we started out yeah. with uh, uh, on the west side there. And then finally, you know, the, the whole um, park of her pieces in New York. So can you talk about that? Because it's, that's a big jump from going from these wooden installations to steel monumental sculpture, yes? Uh, well, he talked her into going to this, I guess it was a metal installation place in Connecticut, where she'd go with a, a model made in wood, and she would ask them to transform it into steel with cranes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think it was a way to make a lot of money at a time when public art was being uh-huh. bought yeah. in New York. At one time, a certain percentage of whatever you planned to spend on a building had uh-huh. to be devoted yeah. to public art. Uh-huh. So she had commission after commission from San Francisco to New York. And that made her even more well-known because here were these enormous dramatic pieces in public spaces. So she's not uh, welding them herself, though, is she? No, 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 no. But she is designing them. And and they are very strong in design. I mean, as you can see, she's had training and she's an artist just at a glance almost. She's going to tell them where each piece goes. Yeah. And uh, there's a wonderful film of her working with the metal crafters and uh-huh. she says darling just just a little just a little bit inch there and uh-huh. just tr- turn it a little bit uh-huh. there and uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well well she is a sculptor like that and that she moves things around a lot doesn't she and she gets them just right i mean yeah. she's very three-dimensional way of thinking and and expressing herself that it's just yes. uh, almost you know beyond human in some ways really superb and a good person with pen on paper too isn't she i mean she becomes a printmaker as well as a sculptor doesn't she that's right she just does some beautiful prints yeah yeah so can you talk about nevelson's critical recognition you know how successful was she when she did get noticed she was very successful when she uh-huh. finally got noticed but it was she was in her 60s uh-huh. and she had to wait a long time 
she was basically ignored a lot as a younger artist. It wasn't really negative, although there was a review that was negative of her as a woman, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't really much negativity about her work. It just was basically ignored until she started working in these large assemblages. And finally, I think she was in her 60s when the Museum of Modern Art included her in a a very important show of young artists. Mm -hmm, (laughs) I mean, she had to wait, and she was angry about it about waiting, very angry. Mm-hmm. But when the time came and she got the recognition that she felt she always deserved, she just blossomed into this grand lady uh-huh. <laughs> but kept working. Uh-huh. And what I always respected her for was, you know, despite all the fame and success, she always got up early in the morning and went to the studio and, and worked. So that was what her life was all about, always. Right till the very end, didn't she? She just kept going and producing more and more. And Nevelson would do these really exquisite tabletop sculptures when she was in her 80s. Yeah. Small pieces, but just wonderful. Yeah. You know? How did she die then eventually? I mean, you write very movingly about it, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it. Um, well... She was a smoker. She Uh smoked little cigars. (laughs) And she got lung cancer. Uh And it went to her brain. And I talked with several people about what happened, including Uh Arnold Glimsher. Uh And it did seem, I mean, she was very aware of what was happening. Uh Had a certain amount of dignity Uh about it. There's a wonderful story of when she's in the hospital, some studio assistant brought her some little pieces of wood. (laughs) And she just lit up. You know, she was she was always herself uh-huh. to the end. But she died, I guess it was 1988, uh-huh. at the age of 88. Uh-huh. And there was a very beautiful memorial service for her at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh-huh. in well, the she, Great Hall. She, she was a yeah. sort of darling of the city in the end there, wasn't she? I mean, they did oh, dedicate was. a park in her, her uh, honor. And, That's uh, right. Yeah, so. That's right. And uh, yeah. she was known everywhere, of course. She's a really, um, you know, and the work was everywhere. The work was the, everywhere, yeah. So very few people attain that kind of fame, you know, and go from being, you know, neglected to being a star of magnitude. Uh, we do have this Louise Bourgeois show here, and also she became very, very well known doing much the same kind of work, you know, sc- sculpture, different kind of sculpture, but sculpture, although early on they, her work looks a lot like Nevelson's, so these kind of totemic pieces. Did they have a relationship? Because I remember something about Bourgeois accusing Nevelson of stealing her stuff, you know, it's, a, it's like a rock and roll, <laughs> yes. you, know, it, yeah. you know, it's like the Who and Jimi Hendrix, yeah. but... Uh, well, <laughs> they certainly knew each other from the 40s on. And, you know, the source of an artist's imagery is really Uh, derived from what artists feel, what they imagine, what they see around them. It's very hard to say that one thing came from one thing and one thing from another. And Nevelson was very open about picking up ideas from artists, Giacometti, Henry Moore. Uh, uh She did go to Louise Bourgeois' show in 1955, and I think Louise Bourgeois was painting her pieces black at that yeah. point, oh, okay. too. Yeah. And it's hard to know who started it first. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think it's ever been 
nailed down. No, you, I forget uh-huh. the quote, but you say something to the effect that she says the same thing when she's asked the question about influence, which brings me back to a point about the biography and about Nevelson, that even though she's not a verbal person, she's a visual person, she's very good about the comments that she does make about what she's doing. I mean, she says very interesting things, very honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is what she says about being influenced. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote. Okay. It's true that you are not isolated and you might get a, f- a fleeting thing that penetrates you and you're not really aware of how much it meant to you. Uh-huh. So, I mean, even on a sort of semi-conscious level, yeah. you know, an artist is always searching. Yeah. They're always looking. They're always searching. Yeah. And you could say she was just as influenced by the totems in Guatemala or yeah. Mexico uh-huh. yeah. as she was yeah. by... Yeah the work of Louise Bourgeois. Yeah, and Uh, vice versa. And of course, Bourgeois is a great believer in the collective unconscious, so she should have known this, I would guess. Yeah, Yeah, I did have a conversation with Louise Bourgeois when Uh I was researching the book and interviewing people. I called her up to ask if I could talk to her about Louise Nevelson. Uh And there was this long silence. (laughs) And then she said, well, she said, why don't you call me back when you're ready to write about me? Okay. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Yeah, so a little, I figured a little there's bit a lot of jealousy yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So can you talk about any thoughts you have about Nevelson's legacy, maybe for an artist starting out or as a model for young women maybe or, or just sort well, of generally? Well, she, yeah. she was just very devoted to uh-huh. her work and to working. And if if she ever was asked to give advice to a younger artist, she would just say, believe in yourself and do your work. Uh And the work has to come first. And it was truly her way to tell people to believe in themselves Uh and don't let anybody stop them from doing what they feel they must do. Yeah, maybe that's why your biography is so successful, because if she is a puzzle and you're looking at her work for clues to who she is, you really cover that link really, really nicely. You know, It's all about the art, for one thing. And then if Louise is being truthful here, that you have to look to yourself, it's about her then also, isn't it? So um, Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what she was doing. I mean, she used to say oh. the English word... For I, E Y E, is pronounced the same way as the word I for oneself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she felt there was a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd really like to thank you, Lori, for talking to us about your book, Louise Nevelson, A Passionate Life, out now in the Kindle edition by Open Road Distributors. It's available as a hardback, as an ebook, and as a paperback. Okay, well, th- thanks very much.